Wednesday night, and it's time for Graphic Policy Radio. We are the show for people who spent their Sunday night alternating between watching the Iowa Returns and watching the new Venture Brothers Season 6 premiere. And in fact, with that in mind, today we have a very special Venture Brothers-centric episode uh, featuring myself, Ilana uh, Levin, or Ilana underscore Brooklyn, as I am known on Twitter, and our recurring guest of awesomeness, Stephen Adewell. Stephen, say hello. Hello. Um, Stephen is a history professor at CUNY and a, uh, an a expert on A Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones, which he blogs about um, at Race to the Iron Throne and also on other websites. And he is a recurring guest for us. And he now has a column, actually, at Graphic Policy, where he talks about the politics in Marvel Comics and historical references in comics that Marvel put out for decades on. Um, and it's an amazing column. We've named it a people's history of the Marvel universe and it's appearing weekly now at graphic policy. So go check it out. Um, so good to see you. And uh, you know, doing this episode actually was your idea and this is a show that I've loved for a long time. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about what you have in mind for us today? Uh, sure. So, you know, I uh, thought that basically uh, what we could do is just start by sort of, uh, talking a little bit about our background in comic books and our background with this show, um, and also our background in pop culture. Um, and I thought we'd sort of very briefly recap um, what actually happens in this episode, not sort of a mm-hmm. blow by blow. Uh, give our general impressions, you know, did we like the episode, did we not like the episode, and then uh, spend most of our time geeking out about uh, the various uh, pop culture references and the themes that were kind of at work uh, in this first episode of the sixth season. Indeed. I find that whenever I talk to somebody who's generally geeky or just a fan of cartoons and they haven't watched the show I, or they've only, or they, but they know about it, generally the thing that's intimidated them and made them not watch it is they were worried that they wouldn't get all the references. And that really makes me sad because that's not the point of the show. Like it is one of the things that the show does incredibly well and it brings a lot of enjoyment to me when I watch the show, but the point of the show isn't to sit there with like a checklist and check off, you know, all the references it makes. That said, we are here to help you with that. So hopefully yeah. this will lower the bar to enjoyment for more people. Um, yeah. So Sounds I good. first got into the show when the first season that started, I don't even know how I ended up watching it because I didn't have a television. My first episode was the uh, one where they are introduced to the Fantastic Four parody which is, you know, the family as uh, the Impossibles, which later became the namesake of my cat. My cat is Rocket Impossible, named after Sally Impossible's baby, the baby who the Grand Inquisitor holds up and says, did somebody lose a baby? Um, so that's ignore my cat. Me. Ignore me. He was found in the middle of the road, like a lost baby. Um, but this, yeah, this show has been one of my biggest TV obsessions forever. And uh, I do, I, I really feel like Doc and Jackson, you know, the create. Uh, the creators of the show, like they're from the same pop culture planet as me when it comes to the comics they read, the movies they read and the music they listen to. Like we just have a bajillion shared pop culture interests, which just makes it very accessible for me. And the art style is so smooth and lovely that the aesthetics of it are just amazing. Um, I'm a huge geek about mid-century graphic design and they reference that constantly. So what about you, Stephen? Um, I got into the show, like, fairly, I don't know, I mean, not immediately, like, it took a couple seasons, um, like, the fir- there was something about the art style of the first season, spe- 
specifically that just like initially I had to get over. Uh, huh. But I then like I think it was just watching the first episode, um, like the 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 secret of the Ooray episode, where it's just like the the comedy wasn't hitting as fast, and then basically. I think I was, like, just binge-watching uh, Adult Swim and uh, watched the um, uh, Dia, Dia de los Muertos episode and mm-hmm. just, like, fell in love with the show the moment that uh, Brock Samson went on his first homicidal rage. Uh, and then just binge-watched the entire series and <laughs> got really into, like, both the kind of, what I thought was funny was that, you know, this was a show that started very much as kind of like an affectionate parody of, uh, you know, Hanna-Barbera cartoons and superhero comics, and then developed one of the richest uh, continuities and universes that you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, so I'm a huge fan of the show. Yeah, one of our friends actually made a working timeline of when everything, when the show would have happened. I, mean, I got to get Jared to post it online so folks can read it. Yes. And it also was one of the first cartoons I'd seen that actually had character development. Um, so many of the really fun cartoon shows, they just don't have any character development or character growth. Um, you know, now we see that a lot actually in the cartoons that are on Cartoon Network that are aimed at kids, right? Adventure Time, Steven Universe. Right. Those are all about character growth. This is the only one for adults that really is, um, and certainly was the first one in doing that. And it's interesting that you mentioned that it was Brock's first rampage that got you interested in him, because one of the things, when he first appears, like his rampage is just this thing, and in the first episode, the way they portray him, he isn't very smart. And I think what's so great about Brock Samson is that it'd be very easy for him to be a character that's dumb, but he's not. He's smart. And I think that's one of the ways that he works so well. Uh, And he's truly an awesome character. And, you know, one of the things that I I kind of, Doug about Brock Samson is that, you know, the, the comedy could have come from the fact that like, he's a badass, whereas the rest of team venture are kind of not, but that, you know, as, as we sort of um, alluded to in our kind of promo text, this is a show very much about failure and that Brock Samson for all that he is, you know, a seven foot tall Swedish murder machine is also <laughs> kind of a failure in a lot of ways uh, mm-hmm. and kind of him, coming to terms with the things that haven't gone right in his own life um, and learning to kind of love the situation that he's in, um, find the good in it, I think is really interesting. Um, oh, the other thing I wanted to, to mention, just in terms of cool things about this show, believe it or not, there is a uh, it's sort of a cross between a zine and an academic journal about the Venture Brothers. Whoa. Um, I'll have to link it in future uh, uh, episodes that we do. But it was like a series of academic essays about, you know, how it was kind of, you know, the kind of pop culture, postmodern referencing thing. But also, you know, that was what got me onto this idea about sort of recognizing how much of the show was about kind of dealing with the false promises of the space age. Um, Mm -hmm. Especially the way that the space age was sort of portrayed in comic books and cartoons. Uh, and that really sort of got me seeing that theme in kind of, you know, throughout the show. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, so let's, so, yeah, let's do let's a brief the episode. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, the new status quo is that Team Venture has moved to New York City uh, because Rusty has inherited his bro- uh, brother Jonas's fortune after his death on Gargantua 2. And uh, Hank has decided to become a trust fund baby 
uh, Dean is applying to Stuyvesant University, which is not the Stuyvesant University you're thinking of. Uh, Rusty is kind of back to his old tricks. Uh, Sergeant Vatred is, uh, is fired. Brock is now their security guard. Uh, in the meantime, Dr. Mrs. the Monarch is kind of the lone voice of reason on As uh, the yeah on the Guild of Calamitous Intents Council of Thirteen, uh, make that seven, uh, now that the Sovereign is no more. And, you know, here's where I thought we should, you know, talk about the, the David Bowie thing because he was such a, a presence on the show, both in terms of sort of his, his musical influence, his cultural influence, and literally as a character for seasons, mm-hmm. the Sovereign of the Guild of Calamitous Intent, the sort of the big bad guy of all bad guys, was David Bowie. Or so we thought. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so by the way, if you could get a little bit louder, that would be awesome. Um, you know, I, okay. I've, it's been interesting. I've definitely heard people who were just not really aware of David Bowie in anything other than like Labyrinth, which makes me sad, um, who like kind of like looked him up and got more interested in him through having watched the show. So I think that's certainly doing the world a good service. Uh, you know, I, one of the points is that we were, you know, revealed at the end of the last season was that actually the Grand Sovereign wasn't actually David Bowie. He was a shapeshifter. But actually, David Bowie is a shapeshifter. So in right. my head canon, I don't think that these points are at odds with each other. Um, additionally, David Bowie died. So much like the shapeshifter became a bird and flew off and died in, it was, uh, in the show, it's, it's like a very strange parallel. Um, because, yeah. right, the show is now alive again, and there's and and Bowie slash the you know is is dead both in the show and off. Um, so even though they said that oh he's not actually Bowie, I actually think that he was Bowie, and Bowie is a shapeshifter. That is like one of the things that Bowie has always done, and it's been an important part of his performance. So, yeah, um, and you know I, you know I kind of I'm really kind of curious to see what they're going to like do with his kind of musical and cultural influence. Cause one of the, the great things about the venture brothers for uh, people who haven't watched the show yet, it is as an amazing soundtrack, uh, both the few mm-hmm. uh, licensed songs that they've managed to get. In fact, the, the uh, two guys who, who do the show um, have talked about that. They're like number one budget thing is always, they're trying to get some amazing song, uh, but they also have this guy, uh, JG Thurwell, Mm-hmm. Uh, who does most of the music for their show, who is amazing at yeah. evoking um, various uh, musical periods. Without he does. I mean, the, the whole show is, like, amazing at doing time period pastiches, and Thurwell is amazing at doing it with audio. Um, you know, he's also, like, really known as essentially being a composer of, like, industrial music. Like, that's his mm-hmm. background. And Doc was in a popular, like, ambient goth band in the 90s. I, like, he knows people who I knew from the scene, which so... There, it's a show that's had a lot invested in music in its execution as well as in the references. Um, yeah. Um, so the moving on in terms of the plot, uh, the rank and file of the Guild of Thirteen, uh, the Guild of Climatus Intent, are not happy. Uh, the New York City chapter needs to get brought on board, or they'll lose their most valuable members. Which means uh, Doctor Mrs. The Monarch has to do this deal with the new character, Wide Whale. Um, at the same time, the monarch is not dealing well with his former arch's uh, newfound success, so he drags uh, Henchman 21 to go reconnoiter the new Ventec Tower. Mm-hmm. And then finally, 
there was a big fight between Brock Samson, uh, Team Ventures Neighbors, the Crusaders Action League, and the nearby headquarters of the New York City chapter of the Guild of Calamitous Intent. And we find out that now uh, Wild Whale is Dr. Venture's exclusive archenemy, along with Dr. And Mrs. the Monarch. So that's setting up. Indeed. Uh, so what were your general impressions of the, the first episode of the season? Um, I I liked it. Uh, there were there were a few bits that didn't quite work with me, but I thought, you know, especially because so much of the episode was about, like, changing scene and, like, the new status quo in New York. There was a lot mm-hmm. of really funny stuff. Um, and, you know, now that the show is moving to New York, we're going to be incredible, insufferable snobs about New York City and comic books, aren't we? <laughs> yes, we are. That's the thing we're very good at. Um, I swear, like, approximately one eighteenth of my conversation around Jessica Jones is referencing different locations in the show. Um, yeah, I think that this episode was definitely a setup episode. I think this is something where if you haven't watched the show and your first episode, your first exposure to it is this episode, you would not find it funny and you wouldn't even find it interesting because this is literally something that just sort of tells you what the status quo is going to be in the show right now and it orients you to where things are going to be. So there totally are bits in this episode that I laughed at, but it wasn't like a super intense or super funny episode and that's okay because it's setting us up for a new scenario that I think is a really rich area for the show to grow in. They haven't really been anywhere else. Like they had a brief couple episodes in New York a number of seasons ago, but this is really the show's first time leaving California and being somewhere else. And, um, you know, the boys are, are actually really growing up now. So I think this sets us up. At, the status quo has been shaken up in a lot of really great and promising ways. But I definitely would say if you're someone who's trying to get your friends into the show and they don't really watch it, don't start with this episode. Uh, I'd actually so say start talk- with Ice Station Impossible from season one, which is my first episode. <laughs> Go That's ahead. a good one. Um, so let's talk about some of the references. Um, you know, there, there's a whole bunch of sort of little fun. You know, I, I don't think you have to catch the references to get the show, but I uh-huh. do think that it just adds a fun additional layer. Um, yeah. So, you know, starting from the very beginning, you know, I thought it was absolutely hilarious that, you know, Team Venture rolls into town uh, in a limousine where Rusty has gone to the extent of getting a vanity license plate uh, that says Rusty's back. And as soon as you mentioned that license plate name, I realized that that song that they're playing is a, is like is, is supposed to be Backstreet's Back, that like Backstreet Boys song. When, when I first heard the song, I kind of thought it was like that Ghostbusters movie song from the second Ghostbusters movie. Um, but it's, I think, actually just supposed to be a playoff of Backstreet's Back. Right. Uh, And so the Ventures have moved, uh, of all places, to Columbus Circle, uh, which, you know, in Marvel continuity, uh, and, you know, one of the reasons why I love Marvel Comics, is that all of their superheroes are set in real locations in New York City. So Stark Tower is uh, canonically 58th and Broadway, um, which makes the fact that their neighbors are the Crusaders Action League quite appropriate because the Avengers mansion is just a few blocks away on 725, excuse me, 721 5th Avenue. So, you know, mm-hmm. superheroes as neighbors is a thing. Yeah. Although I'd have, uh, find it hard to believe this particular crew of characters would be hanging out at the Frick Museum, which is what the actual Avengers mansion is based off of. Uh, 
Right. Uh, so where is the monarch right now? N.E.W. jurors where plenty murders occurs. Okay, I was just referencing a hip-hop song. He is in N.E.W. Okay. jurors where plenty murders occurs. Ah, He's in New Jersey. Okay. Yeah, uh, I'm not exactly sure where in New Jersey his childhood home is, uh, but it's somewhere near the Pine Barrens, because uh, that's where yeah. uh, his parents were killed. Um, that's and, where, like, uh, that's like one of the rich areas of New Jersey. That's like a fancy, like, summer home manor kind of part of New Jersey. Yeah, although his house has now become quite dilapidated, although apparently it is under uh, construction. Um, but, you know, his distance in New Jersey means that he and uh, Henchman 21 have apparently a bit of a commute on the path train to arching in the big city. See, I don't think they're on the path. They're on Jersey Transit, and that is a serious undertaking. They they said the 6 o'clock path train at one oh, point. Oh, really? We'll oh, have to see that. The path doesn't go um, out to the Pine Barrens. Um, so, yeah, sorry, so I don't know along. where in New Jersey they are. Um, anyway, so a bunch of new characters that we meet this episode are the Crusade, the members of the Crusaders Action League, which is kind of a weird mixture of the Avengers and the JLA. Mm-hmm. Um, and we meet three of them, um, Stars and Garters, Warrior Anna, and Fallen Archer. So let's break down kind of who these people are. Um, so, yeah, you know, Stars and Garters is the Captain America looking guy, but with the garter on his arm and the high heels. Um, the line Stars and Garters is also a reference to an exclamation that Hank McCoy from the X-Men has been exclaiming for decades, even though it, I swear it's not actually an expression. But Hank McCoy always is like, oh, my Stars and Garters. That's like his it's, that's like his interjection. So it's yeah. but the character is based on Captain America. Um, yeah, I, um, I also thought it was funny that when they first show up on the lawn, uh, the, the the insults that that Rusty flings at them is, "What is this? The cast of Godspell?" And that's because the guy who plays Jesus in the in the Broadway musical Godspell wears a Superman clown outfit, so an added layer of reference there. Right, um, and you know the thing about Stars and Garters, um, you know, just to sort of compare him to an, uh, a similar figure is uh, unlike the character, say, Maid Man from uh, the comic book Empowered, uh, who is you know, also a, a male superhero who dresses in women's clothes. Um, you know, the Maid Man is you know, an incredible badass and also wears women's clothes. Whereas here, like, because there's the garters, garters thing, it seems to be kind of a little bit more of a joke, even though mm-hmm. they never really reference it directly in dialogue. I really felt like when I saw that, I, I just had to roll my eyes because I'm really tired of the joke, like, haha, dressing like a woman is demeaning. Like, how, like, that's been a joke since the beginning of mankind, and I don't think the joke's very funny anymore. I, I don't think that it's, like, offensive, be, but I also don't think it's very funny anymore. You know, I, yeah. I, I, I think it's a little bit insulting to women. And obviously to men who wear women's clothing and blah, blah, blah. But I don't think it's intended in such a way. I just think it's a, an old joke. And I think the yeah. way that, you're, that, that, that the comic you reference deals with it is actually a much more interesting way to do it. I, I haven't read it, but that sounds interesting. Yeah. Um, Wariana. Um, Wariana is the uh, female member of the Triumvirate who visits. Um, she's a Wonder Woman parody. I noted that, uh, you know, they have in, in the mythology about the Amazons, 
uh, they were alleged to have cut off one of their breasts so that they could draw an arrow more effectively. I don't really think that's an issue in real life when you're drawing arrows. Um, but this Amazon did indeed have one breast, and uh, Brock actually mentions that when he gets in her lasso with yeah. truth later on. She drives an invisible chariot, a la the invisible plane of Wonder Woman. Uh, although I noticed that the, her, her chariot is driven by geese, not horses, which was kind of interesting because they were honking um, throughout the episode. Uh, and, yeah, she mm-hmm. has uh, uh, an invisible lasso, uh, and we'll talk about what happens with that. Um, well, uh, might as well talk about it here. Uh, she basically yeah. gets Brock with it, and, uh, you know, he confesses that, you know, he's kind of really into her, um, you know. And then the third character is, I think, kind of the most, uh, the cleverest idea and kind of the weirdest version, mm-hmm. uh, which is Fallen Archer, uh, who is, uh, Alana feels quite strongly is a Green Arrow parody, uh, although I would note that he wears Hawkeye's purple. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, he shoots arrows with feet on them, and said feet seem to be alive because we see them hopping back into his quiver at one point. Yes, which does solve the question of, like, how do you deal with running out of ammo as an archer? Um, so the reason why I'm saying, I mean, I think Hawkeye's in there, but really he's Green Arrow is because he is literally wearing a purple version of Green Arrow's costume from the 70s from the Mike Grell series, um, the Green Arrow series that he did then, like the sort of dark, gritty 70s Green Arrow. Like, that's his outfit. And, you know, Silver Age Green Arrow is famous for having the stupid boxing glove arrows. So a boxing glove is kind of like a foot arrow. Um, yeah, know, the aerodynamics yeah. of this are, are highly dubious. Um, you know, when you're as strong so- as he is, you can fire arrows that are not aerodynamic. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> so uh, the thing about the Crusaders Action League is that they are a superhero team who only bought insurance with them, um, which kind of, you know, I was wondering whether that's like, given that Rusty's whole thing is that he's now a billionaire, is kind of a comment on like New York City as like, you know, the heart of financial capitalism, um, you know, so the superheroes are more capitalist. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Sure. Sure. Um, so we'll sort of see where they're going with that. Um, you know, we we don't get a whole lot of a look in on the uh, on the CAL this episode, but you know, I, I'll be curious to see where they're going with this. Uh, so other things, uh, I love that uh, New York City's tabloids are apparently just the same in the Venture Universe because uh, we get a headline for uh, a sports story about the Cubs beating the Mets is a uh, swing Heil. <laughs> yeah. That's, Which, that's absolutely what it would be. It's just as offensive and punny as the actual New York tabloid titles, yes. Yeah. Um, so uh, now we come to actually my favorite bit of this episode, which is uh, Dean's new university, which is Stuyvesant University, but that's pretty clearly Columbia University. You know, the mm-hmm. architecture is incredibly distinctive. Um, and there's even a joke about it being hard to get to on the subway. And that's because uh, in Manhattan, there's three different stops at 116th Street. One's on the 1, which lets you off on Broadway. One's on the BC, which gets you off on Central Park. And one is on the 3, which lets you out in Harlem. So, you know, Columbia freshmen frequently get off on the wrong stop and then panic. Um, You know, hence why, you know, they're sometimes late uh, to orientation. 
And uh, mm-hmm. while Dean uh, is, you know, going late for orientation, he meets uh, Nathan Fillion as the Brown Widow. Uh, and that's very appropriate because the Amazing Spider-Man is an alumni of Columbia University. So here we see kind of the Venture Brothers version of uh, Spider-Man and even a Flash Thompson analog. Yes. One of the, I loved, um, you get the moments of Brown Widow's widow's inner monologue where he's debating whether or not he should respond to the bullying using his superpowers or not and he's fretting over this and like that is completely out of steve ditko's like you know 1960s spider-man um and that paralysis that he has over acting which leaves him just making an ass out of himself is like so typical of the show and end of the character yeah, and I, I love what they're sort of doing with the whole inner monologue gag because one of the things that, you know, has always been kind of a running thing with comic books is just how the hell is everyone, you know, saying everything that's in a speech bubble or thinking everything that's in a thought bubble at the same time that they're jumping around. And here it's like it's happening in real time. And, like, Dean is like, hey, what are you doing? Why are you, like, completely zoning yeah. out on me? And then he gets beat yeah. in the back of the head because he spends uh, too much time in his inner monologue. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to seeing where they're going uh, with this uh, because I am myself a Columbia University alumni. Um, so, you know, I'll be really interested to see what they do with that. Hmm. Um, so we then get, uh, you know, the Monarch and uh, Henshaw 21 casing Ventec Tower. Uh, the Monarch poses as a living statue of liberty and Henshaw 21 is posing as the naked cowboy. Uh we haven't yet seen anyone in, you know, we haven't yet seen any uh, anti-Semitic Elmos or Death Nudas, uh, <laughs> but I'm sure there yeah. are. For folks who don't know, like in New York, there's people will pose as living statues, as like the Statue of Liberty, and just stay there and frozen in a position, and like people will give them money. Like that's one of the forms of busking. And then another very popular, well, another legendary, but not oft-repeated form of busking is a guy called the Naked Cowboy, who is not actually naked. Um, he wears white underwear and he plays guitar and like sing songs. And he's been doing that since the nineties. Um, at least yeah, he was recently in a big lawsuit, uh, with the naked cowgirl, uh, who, uh, basically wears a bikini, uh, with stars and stripes and does the same thing. And he basically sued her for, uh, trademark infringement and lost. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> uh, so, you know, uh, same, same, kind of New York attitude there. So then we sort of see inside uh, Ventec Tower, and Hank has gone like full crazy rich person. And I was wondering, did you think that his Hank cave, complete with uh, trampolines, um, uh, uh, whatchamacallit, uh, acrobatics, netting, live draft, like was that a reference to Big? Was that a reference to the Tom Hanks movie? When you suggested it, I decided the answer is yes. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, and, you know, the the next thing that – and sort of clearly who's going to be kind of a returning character is that the head of the New York chapter of Climate is Intent, a uh, character known as Wide Whale, uh, who is pretty much another uh, kingpin uh uh, parody, parody. like Monstroso, you yeah. Know. Yeah, so Monstroso, who is, uh, I think, confirmed dead on this show. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was is sort dead. of formerly, yeah, the Kingpin character, uh, although he was also a giant wrestler. 
Um, yeah. So what do you think? But of I show? think it's great. Like if you're going to do a New York show, you've got to have Kingpin. So I'm glad that they brought him back and this is a good form for him. For those who don't know their fabrics, wide whale is actually a pun because wide whale is a form of corduroy. It's like corduroy where the ribs are very thick. So oh. it's, also a pun. Oh, so that's why there was that whole thing about the noise, where where Doctor Mrs. the Monarch yes. was wondering uh, <laughs> if he could hear her. Can you even he, hear me? Yeah, but he also has very belabored breathing. Together. Okay, I get it. But um, yeah, it's very plush fabric and it is noisy. Um, uh, I I love this bit where they're in the um, there's the meeting of the local grumbling members of the guild who you know, were looking, they were basically doing like a town hall to reassure them that everything is going to be, a, you know, still going to hold their act together. And one of the women, I, I couldn't figure out what her name was, but I bet it would be hilarious, was saying that in the new leadership, we need to be more women in positions of power. And then a character who is African-American looking, or was he? I don't know. I don't Yeah. Well, he no, said there, that there needed there were... to be more people of color. And then a guy dressed up like one of the baseball furies from the Warriors movie. Like he was painted purple with like the black eye spot and in like the Yankees outfit said, and more people of color as because he's painted up various colors. And that I totally laughed. Um, also, I love any references to the Warriors. But I also, yeah. I hope there. I hope that that's true. I hope that we do get a more diverse leadership in the guild because that would be interesting. Yeah, and you know, I'm, I'm when they when they said that they're going to be doing uh, more tryouts for the uh, Council of Thirteen. You know, I'm really looking forward to that. I hope that's going to be an occasion for some really uh, cool character designs. Totally, this show is so good at them. Oh my god, it's really um, one of things that is best actually. Yeah, what did you think of the Little Italy sequence? Because that didn't really work for me as much. It got long. It was, you know, it clearly was a reference to, like, the way certain kinds of business are conducted in various, like, you know, mafia movies that take place in New York. And I couldn't place exactly which one that was, but it was, you know, generally a pastiche of, like, those sort of mafia movies. The joke just kind of went on for a long time. Yeah. I mean, I did like the ongoing thing about, you know, the the speed suit as high fashion was kind of funny. I, I, I really like speed suits. Like, I want a speed suit, too. Um, so uh, the, ne- the next part that I really liked was, uh, you know, when, when Brock is interacting with Hank, because um, Hank comes in to borrow uh, his uh, binoculars, their little interaction about uh, the virtues of Justin Bieber versus Steve McQueen. Yes. And what's interesting is, okay, obviously Steve McQueen is a hottie and like needs to be drop kicked off a cliff. But what I think is interesting was Brock says, describes Steve McQueen as, he says, like, women love a guy who's confident enough to be himself. Which, of course, the irony is he's still telling him to be somebody else. Because right. Hank is not Steve McQueen, <laughs> you know, much to the dismay of many a lady. Um, so, yeah, it's sort of one of those conflicting things. Like, you should be yourself, like this other person. Uh, but it's also like, of course, Brock is a Steve McQueen fan. He likes the, he likes the fashionable turtleneck like Steve McQueen does. Yeah. And, you know, and he's also like his, it's clear that Brock's kind of uh, pop culture sensibilities very much kind of, you know, lived and died 70s. in the 1970s. You know, he's all know. about that. He's all about uh, Steve McQueen. Um, and he has yeah. Justin oh, Bieber. Sorry, um, mm-hmm. As he should. Um yeah. 
one quick thing we just skipped though is uh, there's a conference. There's like a Google Hangout basically conference call happening oh, yeah. between Dr. Mrs. The Monarch and the other remaining leadership of the guild. And they're talking about how New York is aloof and threatening to secede. And that just sort of reminds me how there's always been this thing in New York where people have proposed New York City to secede from New York State. Like, oh, not just from New York State. Be, and from, from the world, from America, yeah. I guess I'm just yeah, about Norman I mean, from, Miller in, especially. In the, middle of the, uh, in the middle of the American Civil War, the mayor of New York uh, suggested that New York City secede from the Union and become uh, a free city. Yeah, in the name of slavery, no less. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, he was not our one of our best mayors. So, no, he um, was not. So Hank takes the uh, the binoculars up to the roof, has his own little Brian De Palma body double rear window moment, uh, where he sees a young woman uh, dive into a pool and then seemingly drown, um, only to find out that this young woman is uh, probably Wide Whale's daughter, I'm guessing. Yeah, I think so. Uh, she's certainly a young woman with gills. Um, she is. But what I liked about this moment is that, you know, uh, we'll talk about this a little bit more when we get to themes, but, you know, there's this whole kind of thing about Hank being the one who enjoys himself the most, who kind of, you know, leans into this weird life that they've been given. Um, and so, you know, his instinct, you know, the moment that, you know, he sees this is he goes and grabs um, – Brock's uh, grapnel gun and decides to uh, slide Save across, her. you know, yeah. you know, <laughs> skyscrapers, and it's a completely idiotic thing to do. But it's, you know, what I like about it is it's it's showing him enjoying uh, his life. He's grabbing life by the gills, as it were. Uh. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so here's where uh, the monarch and uh, uh, and henchman twenty one uh, get into uh, the venture towers. Uh, yeah, that, like, the opening of Die Hard. Yeah, I recently watched Die Hard for the first time. Yes, I know. Um, and I felt like the whole way that they entered it and took out the guards just completely reminded me of the way they enter um, Kobayashi Towers in um, Die Hard. Mhm. Uh, and you know. For me, the the thing that I thought was absolutely hilarious is when they get stuck on the elevator with Sea Captain, uh, who has, uh, well, as I'll, as we'll discuss in a bit, fallen off the wagon with the dart gun. Um, you know, they, they specifically call out that you know, uh, you know, first of all, there's the whole like M Night Shyamalan devil movie, which was, you know, set in an elevator in New York City, and you know, it's a <laughs> terrible movie, and none of you should ever watch it. Uh, but also the oft-used uh, trope of the uh, retinal scan, and whether or not you uh, pull up, uh, you know, pull out someone's eye or just hold them up, you lazy bastard. <laughs> yeah, I was glad that they did not yank out his eye, even though he is a sea captain. He does not need an eye patch. Well, he's already got an eye patch. So I know. I mean, be... like another eye patch, you know. Yeah, he'd be blind. Um, yeah. So that kind of kicks off the big fight sequence that ends the episode where we get uh, a whole bunch of sort of really funny stuff in succession. Uh, so J-Bot is the more advanced robot that Jonas Venture built that is clearly better than Helper. Um, and it's got this whole kind of Ultron Iron Man thing going on. It literally does a ground pound like in the 
in the movies, um, whereas Helper, unfortunately, can't climb stairs. That's when I realized that Helper was a Dalek. Yep. Um, and uh, so, you know, Hank falls off the um, his, his uh, grapnel line, but gets saved by a character who is a multi-pastiche. We're talking the Punisher, we're talking Ghost Rider, we're talking Knight Rider, and we're talking the spirit, a character called Night Dick. <laughs> Do you want to break uh, that down for folks? I mean, yeah, he's got a so, flaming motorcycle, which is like Ghost Rider, the character right. of Marvel. Um, he, was, uh, he was killed by the mob, um, Punisher and the spirit. Uh, mm-hmm. The music theme that's playing when he uh, introduces himself is the Night Rider theme. Uh, from oh. the classic uh, Hasselhoff show from the 80s. Uh, and he's wearing a domino mask and a uh, fedora, just like the uh, Will Eisner character, The Spirit. Yep. And Out of curiosity, have you, ever seen the, uh, have you ever seen the terrible, terrible Frank Miller movie of The Spirit? No, I didn't, actually. And the art direction looked it, decent, but I didn't bother. It is one of, like, I spent the entire movie laughing my ass off because it was the worst movie I'd ever seen. And it was erotically <laughs> bad. Uh, so, you know, if you're ever in, in a mood to, like, watch a So Bad It's Good movie, um, worth watching. Uh, Got it. And then the, you know, final couple things. Uh, Sergeant Batred, uh, now that he's lost his job, has apparently turned into Robert De Niro in Taxi Driver. Which is fucking perfect. That's, like, one of <laughs> yeah. the smartest things the show has done. I mean, for one thing... I have a lot of friends who have been complaining about how much they hate Sergeant Hatred for a long time. And my attitude was, I thought it was an interesting character. You know, Brock is a better character, but I kind of liked having Brock do different things and have Sergeant Hatred in. But as by the end of last season, I was done with Sergeant Hatred. And I was so refreshed to see Brock is back. Yay. But having Sergeant Hatred become De Niro and Taxi Driver, that's inspired. That is inspired. Yeah, and, you know, yet again, another great New York, uh, you know, film homage. Indeed. Um, so, yeah, he'll so be sticking around about... and endangering people, basically, is what I think. Yeah, and I, I love the fact that, like, initially you think that he's figured out who um, uh, who the Monarch and Henchman 21 are, uh, but it turns out that all that he's noticed is that they didn't tuck their uh, uniform shirts in. Oh, yeah. So, you know, he's like, you know, yes, he's being Robert De Niro in Taxi Driver, but he's still the same semi-competent Sergeant Patriot that he's always been. Hmm. And then Uh, at the end, you know, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, no, no, you go ahead. And at the end, you know, after the Justice League of Insurance Defenders has messed up their uh, rooftop patio in flames, Venture says, um that, you know, who's going to clean up this mess? And, of course, I thought, doesn't this world need Damage Incorporated? Damage Incorporated, of course, being the Marvel Comics team that were basically superheroes who existed to clean up the battles of other superheroes. Yeah, and am I crazy, or are they making a show of that? They say say a lot of things. (laughs) Hmm. Okay, I'm getting confused because... Because apparently Damage Inc. is also a Metallica cover band. Um, yeah, because it's an album. Southern California. It's a Metallica album. 
So yeah, so I can't find uh, anything on the web about whether or not they're making a, a show of Damage Incorporated. But I that would be like awesome. I've heard that, but yeah, I feel like I've heard that. So, um, cool. so lots let's talk about some of the. Sorry. Yep, lots of references there. Yeah. Um. So let's talk about some of the themes in this episode. So, one really kind of. You know, not entirely new thing because there's always been this kind of uh, examination of kind of superheroes and supervillains as a business. Uh, you know, because we've had the Guild of Calamitous Intent, we've had the OSI, we've had Sphinx. Sphinx. Um, <laughs> but you know, here we have like, you know, we're seeing the rank and file of the Guild of Calamitous Intent uh, complaining about bad service. Um, you mentioned that it looks like a geek con. Yeah, I think that the meeting, the town hall, has mm-hmm. the whole look of it. Just looks like people having a bad time at a geek convention, right? Complaining about um, how things are being done. Yeah, and likewise, the the whole you know idea of the Crusaders Action League is that they're a superhero team that only helps people who pay up. Uh, and you know, their first uh, you know appearance in the episode is literally trying to give the hard sell. Uh, in a very nasally, not particularly impressive way on their mm-hmm. gold plan. Um, and, you know, also speaking about sort of, you know, corporate politics, um, I did feel that, you know, uh, we're seeing the phantom limb uh, trying to kind of make a couple power plays against uh, Dr. And Mrs. the Monarch, which I think is yeah. going to be sort of an ongoing theme of this season. Oh, he, that's all he does. He's undermines her. Like, you know how in the end it turns out that, you know, the deal was that she was going to arch with Wide Whale and that they would replace the monarch as Venture's arch? I actually think that that was her idea and that she was sent there by Phantom Limb to basically just, like, be a sex object, actually. That's how I read that. Yeah. Thing. Well, certainly it seemed like he was trying to sort of run rings around her and what she thought she was going there to do initially was to, like, make the cell, like, hey, join the the, the yeah. Council of Thirteen, and that, like, Phantom Limb was kind of trying to reduce her to the level of, like, no, you're just a, a honey trap, basically. Yeah, exactly. Fuck him, um, he's although, the worst. Yeah, although they're, they are doing this kind of, like, ongoing uh, arching as sort of psychosexual drama thing, uh, because, you know, while the relationship of, you know, uh, the Monarch and Dr. Mrs. The Monarch has always been a very strong, if extremely kinky one. Um, yeah. You know, he has always kind of also been in lust with Rusty Venture himself, uh, to the point where he once fucked a robot that looked like Rusty Venture. Uh, oh, God, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's going to be sort of... I, I'm kind of expecting... Um, and almost like, uh, you know, who's afraid of a Virginia Woolf kind of like, you know, marital dispute drama about the fact hmm. that she's sort of cheating on him by arching with someone else, uh, even if there's no sort of physical intimacy involved. Yeah, I think that that's totally going to be there. Um, so, yeah, let's let's talk about another theme, which is this idea of sort of stagnation and personal growth, which has, you know, been this ongoing thing on the Venture Brothers, you know, ever since we learned that, you know, Hank and Dean were originally clones, and every time they, every time they died, they'd get reset. So that's kind of a hard reset on any kind of personal development. And then when yeah. their clones died, 
um, I think at the end of season two, um, that was kind of mm-hmm. the moment where now they have to, now they have to mature. They don't have an an option. Now they have to grow up. Um, yeah, and that's really when they so, really committed to having each of the boys having a different personality from each other. Right. Initially, they were pretty similar. Um, if, yeah, they were pretty. There were distinctions, but they were pretty similar. It was definitely more that you know Hank has always been more outward, more more, and Dean has always been more of an introvert. But that was kind of like that's kind of all there was in terms of the difference between the two of them until they began developing, you know, more personalities after the clones died. Yeah. So, you know, in this episode, like one of the things that I kind of hit on was that, you know, it's pretty clear that Brown Widow and his sort of Flash Thompson analog are like stuck in their high school college dynamic that like, you know, Flash Thompson is now apparently a PE coach and the Brown Widow is, uh, I don't know if he's a teacher, but he's certainly working for the university uh, as a tour guide. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know they're they're in their they look like they're in their forties, but they haven't really grown up. No, yeah, and obviously, like I was saying, you know, Brown Window is like literally paralyzed by his powers because he's scared of using them, basically. Yeah. Um, and you know, as as we learned um, last season, like clearly, what he really wants to do is go on Broadway. Um, so yes. you know, we'll see if now that uh, Rusty Venture has all the money in the world, uh, whether he decides to fuel his dreams of. Uh, Broadway stardom. Uh, And speaking of Rusty, you know, he kind of has like the opposite um, rather than, or not, sorry, not the, he has the opposite of personal growth, which is that now that he's got money again after, you know, what, five seasons of, you know, being broke and a deadbeat, that like he's going instantly back to this, you know, tendency that he has of being an asshole boss who fires everyone on day one and all of a sudden the building doesn't work right anymore. Yeah, and he's just always cushioned by the fact now that he the risk is there's less risk for him because he's not about to like starve and be foreclosed on at this point. Yeah, and you know that was always one of the things that I kind of liked about Rusty when he was kind of down on his luck is that it kind of forced him to to grow up a little bit and really kind of confront what he'd done with his life and what he hadn't. Yeah. Um, so you know, speaking of someone who has experienced uh, some personal growth. Uh, Hank, as I said, is really kind of embracing his new identity as a rich kid. Uh, he's certainly the person who's sort of, you know, living in the moment, enjoying his new situation. Uh, it certainly seems that, uh, you know, his uh, sex drive, his sort of sexual maturity has continued from the time that he slept with Dermot's mom and then mind-wiped himself. Uh, so that's kind of interesting. Um, and he did have the sort of the more... Uh, thematic arc of the episode, like, you know, Dean had this new situation and he's going to university, but he was the one who kind of learned a lesson, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dean's going to college. Um, he's definitely settling into his fashion choices. Like, I, you know, when he was dyeing his hair black, I was like, of course, like, he would, he, Dean would have the moment where he had to dye his hair black. But his, his current hairstyle is, like, definitely more in the right direction. Um. Yeah, and but also was like of course, like every like redheaded guy who like did not understand that red hair is good when they became a young teenager dyed their hair black. Like I know all of y'all, you did that, and it was ridiculous because <laughs> your eyebrows are still red. But um, <laughs> that was just to me. I was like, of course you did. Um, but yeah, he's growing into his own style. He's like 
got his sort of emo boy chic thing going on. Yeah, and it'll be interesting seeing him go to college because, you know, that's always been a thing that, you know, Rusty Venture, as much as he calls himself Dr. Venture, never graduated from college uh, and to upstate university with everyone else. Um, So Dean's going to his own university. He's not following, uh, you know, he's not becoming literally a legacy student. So it'll be interesting to see how he, uh, you know, how he proceeds with that. Yeah. Um, um, mm-hmm. So let's talk about uh, character development or, or lack thereof in Brock's case, because yeah. one of the things that I actually did like about last season is that his whole, uh, you know, being with the OSI um, introduced some sort of new character dynamics that his relationship uh, with Molotov Coxtees, uh who didn't show up this episode, like, you know, had not just some resolution, but some sort of interesting changes. Uh, I mean, he had closure, had, really. Yeah, and he had this uh, ongoing affair with uh, Amber Gold, who is kind of a, a G.I. Joe parody. She is um, cover girl from G.I. Joe specifically. Like, right. she is specifically the character cover girl from G.I. Joe. But continue. Uh, and we just don't know where that's going. So I hope they didn't kind of drop that completely. Um, you know, because I'd like to see, you know, even if uh, G.I. Joe, you know, sorry, even if Brock is, is back as the bodyguard, you know, I think that's kind of his best role. Uh, yeah. You know, in the show, I, I would still like to see him, you know, continuing to, to try to, you know, mature and live his life. Mm-hmm. And um, the potential love interest with Wariana could really be interesting. Yeah. And uh, you pointed out this... Think it was, Sorry, go ahead. Hmm? I was moving ahead. Go ahead. Well, I, I was going to say it was an interesting contrast from, uh, I don't remember what season it was, but do you remember the episode where they met their, like, distaff counterpart, the the Bobsy twins and the uh, the um, uh, Tomb Raider parody, and they had a bodyguard who was very much like uh, a very kind of, like, masculine Brock equivalent woman yeah. Uh, who, mm-hmm. yeah, and there it was played more for laughs, and it wasn't like he wasn't into it, and she was kind of hitting on him, and it was weird. Uh, and so, you know, it'll be interesting to see Brock with, you know, exploring a relationship with a different kind of woman than he's been with in the past. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the, as you pointed out, the sea captain has fallen off the dark gun wagon. Poor guy. Yeah. It was really fast too. It was, you know, he's he's been doing really well in recovery, and you know, the monarch gets him once, and then he's stealing dart guns from Brock, and literally tapping out the monarch. Like he's getting shot in the neck like nine times. Uh, yeah. Poor guy. Um, and then this is something which did not happen in this episode, but I want to talk about anyway because you're like the only other person who will understand. So the, the, the character of Dr. He, of Dr. Killinger uh, is a recurring yes. character in the series. He has the uh, sort of like a carved black mask and he speaks in a German accent because he's Henry Kissinger. And what right. has been kind of killing me a little bit the whole time is he's essentially presented as being a professional development consultant and like a self-help guru to supervillains. And that's right. sort of cutifying somebody who is, honest to God, a war criminal who is never going to have justice against him in his lifetime. And I, right. I just know that there's, like, all these kids out there who are, like, watching this show 
who like have no idea that Kissinger is a real person or who there's only reference for him is like the Venture Brothers and like don't understand that he is a war criminal um, was responsible for the yeah. death of like just countless people in Vietnam. Well, yeah, Vietnam, Cambodia. Cambodia, you know, all over, you know, he he overthrew the government of Cyprus, he overthrew the government of uh, Chile, you know, he's very bad yeah. person. And, you know, you're right that he, like, in a lot of genre media, he's often played for laughs, like uh, on Futurama, for example. Like, Killinger's Head uh, is a character there, and most of the gag is that, you know, he talks with this funny accent and that, uh, you know, despite being very ugly, he used to sleep with very beautiful women. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a bit of a problem. Um, and, you know, they seem to have kind of written him out of the show a little bit. Like, he was uh, a really big presence last season because it turns out that the the evil... Um, uh, the investors, as they were called, are were his brothers in this sort of weird vampire cult. Um, and, you know, I think they've kind of moved on from that character a little bit. Yeah, I mean, but he could reemerge. I have no idea. It just sort of like the kind of thing that I just want people to, to, to be aware of and think about, you know? Yeah. Um, it's sort of like, I don't know, like, you know, the whole existence of, like, robo-Nixon and Futurama... Um, you know, right. he, he does such a good freaking voice actor of, of of Nixon, and you just always sort of wonder, like, is cutifying these like evil people? Like, I mean, the joke is really good, but what does it mean? Yeah, yeah. When I was a, a, a teaching assistant as a grad student, um, I had a professor who liked to bring in a Nixon mask and uh, do the accent when he was doing the class on the seventies. And, like, while that was fun, it was also kind of like there was this weird dissonance um, between, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the the reality of, you know, the illegal invasion of Cambodia and, you know, this kind of funny impression. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's... It's, it's a, I, I, so I, I don't know. He might be back. I wouldn't. They re, they really enjoy the character. Like they've brought him back. Every time they bring him back, I'm like, oh god, they brought back Killinger again. Like he's been brought back throughout the series in many different times. Yeah. Um. So you know, I uh the last theme I wanted to sort of talk about is this kind of idea of dealing with failure. Um. You know, this is kind of like a weird moment because, you know. Rusty Venture seems to be like everything's looking up for him. Um, And, you know, I think it's an open question about like how and when is he going to fuck this up? Yeah, so that is inevitable that he will. He's going to blow through all the money, you know. I also have to wonder what's happening with Sally Impossible. Like, I mean, I I hope that Jonas Venture, that's my attempt to do his Oh, yeah, she Um, she got some of the money. I mean, I hope we we don't really know what the status is with her. I really want to know. Yeah, I like, uh, so there was there was like an interstitial thing between the end of last season and the beginning of this season that they mm-hmm. like put up on YouTube, and it was like before they actually read out the whole of the will. And the kind of the gag was like first they talk about that he gave money to to Sally Impossible, then that he gave uh, oh, and she gets Spider Skull Island. Um, oh, that's what I remember that so, now. 
Yeah, so the gag was that, like, initially he thought that he wasn't getting anything, and then it turns out that he's getting the the giant tech company fortune. Right. I, I really care about Sally Hawk and possible and I want good things to happen for her, so I want I want her to be taken care of. Um, her and her yeah. adorable baby rocket. Yeah, and I I'd love to see, you know, uh where they're going with, with Rocket Impossible. Um, she had a couple of good character moments in all this in Gargantua too. Um like when she, she calls out her ex husband Richard Impossible, like very effectively and I was cheering. In that last episode, yeah. um, and you know it, it'll be interesting to see how she handles being single uh, because, like, part of mm. the the initial gag with her was that she was sort of someone who was very codependent and needed to be in a relationship with anybody else uh, to sort mm. of make changes in her life. So hopefully she'll be able to sort of move on from that. Uh, speaking of people dealing with failure, I do not think, as I said, the monarch's going to have an easy time dealing with. Dr. Venture's new arching situation. He's never had a good time with that, uh, whether it's Sergeant Hatred, the Phantom Limb, anybody else. Uh, he, you know, he really feels that he and Dr. Venture were kind of uh, mad science soulmates, as it were. Yeah. He, like, he is the person who he says, like, he's targeted and chosen since they were young and um, it's a specific kind of relationship. Like that's his guy. I don't know how it's going to be a shit show. He's going to be super jealous of his wife. He's going to be trying to sneak in and arch behind her back. Um, yeah. And you know, I hope what they're going with, with the whole, like his, his family home under renovation thing and pulling things out of the walls. Cause the, the big revelation uh, about, you know, the, the monarch from last season is that he finds a photograph of himself as a child with uh, playing with Rusty Venture. And, like, you see his family and uh, the the Venture family. And since, you know, uh, old man uh, Jonas Venture was uh, very much a swinger, you know, there is the open possibility that they're related. Right. So I hope they keep exploring that. Um, Because that has been some of the the most fun uh, continuity stuff to come up in the show. Yeah, that was an interesting implication. I I was wondering about that. I I I I don't know. I mean, they both have such they both have very fast metabolisms and narrow faces, but that's about all I can and, say. And red hair. Oh yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Which is recessive so, indeed. Um, yeah. Hmm. So we'll see where they're going with that. Um, Another clearly big thing is the the Guild of Calamitous Intent and sort of, you know, speaking of failure, it's clearly in a down spiral. Uh, And, you know, I'm really hoping to see uh, Dr. Mrs. the Monarch kind of grapple with, uh, you know, leadership. Because that's always been something really interesting about her character in the past is that she's an incredibly competent uh, supervillain, you know, pretty much more competent than, than anyone she's with but she is always held back from, from striking out on her own. Yeah. Um, so I mean, she's she's been the, she, the thing is she's been the one with a good career for a couple of seasons now. You know, she's somebody right. who's consistently perceived as being competent because she is, and he's kind of consistently seen as a fuck up. Um, and, you know, in some ways, like the whole trope of like the competent woman and the incompetent man is like very been there, done that. But I really love her as a character. She's, She's awesome. Yeah. I think she's the protagonist of the show in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, and, I, I don't know yeah. if I'd say he's he's completely a fuck up. Like I've always thought of it more as like what she's really really good at is the business of being a supervillain. Of like, you know, she knows how the cocoon works. She knows how to you know actually get shit done. And what's kind of great about the monarch is he's kind of like the art side of it, which is he has this incredible purity of uh arching that you know he's he's not a, a super villain to get rich he's not a super villain to become powerful or rule the world he's doing it for the pure reason that he hates this one asshole and he's going to ruin that guy's life if it takes his entire life to do it and there's something like i don't know like i've always kind of responded to the i don't know if you can call it the nobility of that purpose but you know the, certainly the mm-hmm. intensity and the purity of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that I've been thinking about in the show in general, and again, this is one of my favorite shows of all time, without question, but it's a show that loves its villains so much that it sometimes has a hard time putting them in any kind of really mortal stakes. Um, it does put them in emotional stakes, though. Like the status of characters' relationships with each other can very much be at risk. But ever since, like, I got to forget which season it was, you know, where, they, where when, when Dr. Mrs. the Monarch and well, when Dr. Girlfriend at the time and the Monarch get married, and the whole thing was set up as if, like, they were both, as if they were going to get killed and then the guild actually marries them. Um, right. That felt like it was this big buildup, like, to a life or death moment that, that somebody could die in. And then it was like, oh, we, we love you. Like, there's a lot of, like, bad guys being good to bad guys for reasons that just come a, kind of come across as being, like, not really well fleshed out. I, I feel it's because the show loves its villains so much, it doesn't want any harm to come to them. And I sympathize because I also love its villains. But I think in some ways it's written itself into a hard situation of how to deal with that. Well, we'll, we'll have to see in the next episode. Indeed. Uh, so but, I you think know, that's like, it for this episode. Yeah, that that uh, helper being replaced. Oh, yeah, oh, the helper, helper kills his replacement, though. He just straight up pushes J-Bot off of the building, so. And the little coda of the episode, yeah. It was very funny. So that's it, guys. Um, oh, God, I would just say the one reference that I feel like nobody ever gets, this is not from this episode, that nobody ever gets that I always have to tell them, is back when you first have, um, the, you know, Iggy Pop and uh, David Bowie, and Iggy Pop betrays David Bowie in like I don't know season three. I'm, I I should have looked it up. Nobody ever seems to recognize who the third person with them is. That's the guy with the the pointy tri, like his hair is in like three separate spikes, and he's wearing a giant black bow tie. That's Klaus Nomi, who was an experimental music like underground artist in New York. You should go look up um, Lightning Strikes is the song that you could probably find on YouTube. Uh, he, it's like a combination of like visual and experimental music. And he was friends with Bowie. He sang Bo- He sang Back Up um, when Bowie was on Saturday Night Live uh, doing a number of songs in the, in the late 70s. Well, it was for Station to Station, so I guess, yeah. Anyway... I just feel like whenever I talk to people, nobody ever catches that reference. So here I am to give you that piece of information. Do you have any parting references that you want to shout out uh, to, Stephen? Not particularly. Um, but, you know, I'm looking forward to next episode and seeing where they go with this season. 
That's great. So, um, so any for, for folks who want to find you uh, online, tell tell us your uh, Tumblr and your website and your Twitter handle. Okay, uh, so you can find me at uh, Race for the Iron Throne on WordPress.com or on Tumblr.com, and I'm at Steve Natwell on Twitter. Cool. And Graphic Policy, we're at graphicpolicy.com. We have our Tumblr, Graphic Policy. Also, Twitter, Graphic Policy. I, myself, am Ilana underscore Brooklyn. That's E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn at Twitter. And on Tumblr, did you guys know I have a Tumblr? I do. I'm Ilana Brooklyn, no underscore. Um, And you can also find us on uh, Facebook. So thank you guys for joining. We'll be back next week on Monday talking about Jessica Jones again. Um, most likely Jessica Jones again on Monday. And uh, Stephen, thank you for joining us. Okay. See you around. Bye.